0: We are delighted to be here with you for another one of our um, HCI webinar series. Um, we've been running this for quite some time and it's lovely to see some uh, familiar faces or f- familiar names at least um, for our attendees. So uh, my name is Una Gilvary. I'm the CTO, the Chief Technical Officer of HCI. And this morning I'm joined also as part of the presentation by Lisa McGrain. She's our one of our best practice specialists And Lisa will be talking a little bit more detail this morning about some of the IPC findings from the HICWA uh, reports. So all of of this morning's uh, detail is in relation to A summary uh, that we've completed of 20 random HICWA reports and looking and trending some of the findings um, that arose from that, hopefully to provide us with some learnings as we move forward um, over the over the next little while. And it's always good to benchmark ourselves against uh, some of, of, of the areas of particular focus. So, in that regard, we will—I uh, think—we'll we'll push ahead at this stage. Um, I'm sure at this stage you all know who HCIR are, but I'm legally mandated to tell you uh, by Rosemary every time. That we have a webinar. So, we're the uh, leading professional services provider of resident safety, regulatory compliance, and quality improvement, intelligence, and support to health and social care organisations. So, that's across the remit of from residential disabilities uh, right through to acute care. So, within our organisation, we have a number of quality and safety specialists that are working directly with. Um, providers like yourselves. And we utilize a number of quality information systems to support the work that we do. Within HCI, we have a number of best practice specialists. Lisa is one of those. And uh, our primary focus is to ensure that all of the tools and techniques and and, uh, 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 templates that we utilize are reflective of uh, evidence-based best practice um, in that regard. So what I wanted to do, and it's something that I'd like to introduce as part of the webinar series, is just kind of having a quick scan around, to do a horizon scan on what's new within the residential care sector, and uh, just to see if we can highlight some key findings in that regard for yourselves. A couple of documents are three documents I just want to focus on particularly that have been released uh, very recently. The first of those you won't be surprised to see was there was an update to the guidelines on the prevention and management of cases and outbreaks of COVID-19, influenza, and other respiratory infections in residential care facilities. So you know at this stage that the separate guidance for COVID has now been combined between the COVID and influenza as a singular guidance, but it continues to be updated on an ongoing basis. And I know this is something that Lisa has been very involved in to ensure that within HCI, that our templates are reflective of these changes, but there were changes again uh, in this guidance document uh, released quite recently some of them related to contact tracing requirements so it's certainly something that you need to spend a little bit of time on and make sure you're aware of any of the changes it is a constantly shifting ground in that regard another document that came out in in may infection control guiding principles for buildings acute hospitals and community settings the importance of that is these recommendations actually apply to new residential care centers major additions to existing residential care facilities and major renovating renovations to existing inpatient and residential accommodation areas. So there are a, there's a wide ranging set of requirements within that in relation to sinks and, and, and uh, access and, 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 and so like. So it's, it's certainly important for you to have a look at that also. A document that was just released in the last couple of days is the uh, AMREC competency framework for infection prevention control practitioners in Ireland, and there's been a a certain amount of talk about this document. It was released in March, but they're really doing the the, the public announcements and and discussions about it in the last little while. Now, the aim of the framework was to provide standardization of core competencies for IPC practitioners, primarily, I think, to assist in the curriculum design of a number of postgraduate training programs, uh, which, which are currently in development to support health care organizations in developing and and upskilling their IPC workforce, to support self-assessment for an IPC practitioner, and to assist and complement staff appraisal and professional development plan process. So it's quite a detailed document. It gets into a number of, it's kind of six key areas. You've got leadership in IPC, microbiology and surveillance, IPC and clinical practice, education quality and safety, uh, quality and patient safety, and IPC and our Health. So there's six primary areas there. So it really is a duck, and that's worth taking some time to have a look at. Certainly those of you who are building up IPC expertise in-house, it will provide a, a good support in that regard. So it's, it's certainly worth taking some time to have a look at. One other thing I just wanted to pull up for your information, and this is taken from the HICWA newsletter from April. And uh, they talked about their ongoing regulation of inspections in nursing homes. And again, they just detailed that they are continuing the specific focus on infection control and fire precautions to drive improvements in this area. And you'll see from the findings that we're about to discuss in a little while, uh, certainly the focus is in uh, this area particularly. Um, in relation to IPC, they have recommended that uh, registered providers maintain a focus on ensuring that they have good local oversight on their IPC processes, sufficient, well-located and appropriate staff hand washing facilities, effective maintenance systems and ensure premises are in a good state of repair. And there was a lot of focus in particular about the level of repair of residential homes uh, within the, the, the inspection reports that we reviewed appropriate cleaning products and that staff are knowledgeable about their use. So again, they're giving the, the high hitters that they are going to be looking at in every organization that they review IPC within, which is generally going to be all of them. When we talk about when they talked about fire safety, HIQA had detailed that they're looking for nursing homes to ensure that residents in the center Are appropriately protected by arrangements, so a lot of controls um, and, and preventative measures in place. And they're also going to, as part of the inspection, they're going to review arrangements for detecting, containing and extinguishing fires. They're looking at firefighting equipment and that includes the servicing and checking of the means of escape, your staff training and knowledge, tests and drills completed and how they can give insurance for residents to be safely evacuated. And When we look at the staffing element particularly that is very much linked with the fire safety about your evacuation plans that are in place for uh, for nighttime. So there are just some of the uh, when we did a little scan of of what's out there right now some of the key areas of focus. So I want to get in now to the report itself. Um, As I said this, this Uh, information was put together from 20 randomly selected inspection reports. And we looked at some of the key areas of interest and types of findings under each of the regulations. Now this is a screenshot, there's a lot of detail here, but we'll look at it in in separate slides, but I just wanted to divide them up into the capacity and capability and the quality and safety. So we can see that there are a number of of regulations that are pulling up uh, red risk, uh, person in charge, staffing, governance and management. But of interest, I suppose, is to look at the number of services inspected against the regulation. So all 20 of the facilities were inspected with governance and management, 19 with staffing and 10 with persons in charge. If we look at the other dimension then, you can see a, a, a pretty big number of um, uh, of regulations pulling up orange um, non-compliances and pretty big numbers too. Um, we have uh, infection control 18 of the 20, which is surprising. I would have thought it would have been twenty twenty that, that were reviewed, but 67% of those carrying non-compliances. Uh, premises, protections, individual assessments and care planning also coming in at orange, but fire precautions again, 16 of those reviewed. Again, I would see that number increasing with 75% of the services reviewed being not compliant and 31% of those carrying red risks. So obviously that's worth a little bit of further investigation. So we're going to look at governance, fire precautions, infection control staffing, um, brief look at person in charge and and premises as well, and just kind of pull out some of the key findings in each of these areas um, that hopefully we can learn from going forward. So, Unsurprisingly, we're going to start with governance and management as we generally do. So 55% of the 20 organizations had non-conformances in this area with 15% of those being red risk and 40% of them carrying orange risks. This is kind of a general statement I suppose is uh, when we look at the red risk and it, it, you know they often open with that this type of general statement, but governance and management range, arrangements were not effective and did not identify the impact of poor quality care and support being delivered to residents. Now, this was an interesting line and I'll tell you why. Uh, we recently did a review and uh, of the Oak and Dean um, report, which was the investigation into the she- uh, Shrewsbury and Telford maternity services in the UK, where there was a horrendous uh, Care failings across the board over um, 19, it was a, a period of time over 19 years, was reviewed. But the final report in the Oak and Dean Review squarely left the blame for the poor care that was provided at the feet of governance. It said that it was the sole single driver of all of the care failings uh, throughout the organization. So that's why within HCI, we always start governance. I mean, it really is uh, the foundation for for the service that's been provided on a a day-to-day basis. So certainly it was identified in this case that governance was the primary driver of the, and it did not um, accept um, the the impact that it was having on, on the care being provided, and it wasn't robust enough to be able to support it. It was evidenced by risk identification and management systems had not picked up serious incidents or serious issues that were affecting residential welfare. So again, there was that unknowing uh, within the governance model um, where there was a significant amount of data being created throughout the organization, but that information wasn't being trended and analyzed and utilized to be able to identify those serious issues that were impacting on resident welfare. There were safeguarding concerns and these were not correctly identified and managed leaving residents at risk. We'll talk about this one a little bit later, but it seemed that although individuals had been trained in safeguarding, um, the training was not sufficient and not uh, sufficiently detailed so that when there were safeguarding concerns, they weren't being identified as such and that's something we'll talk about a little bit later. Analysis of information following regulatory inspections, management meetings or audits were not leading to the development of quality improvement plans or improved resident care. We've talked about this before, about within a quality and safety management system, it cannot be pushed from the bottom up. It has to be taken from the top down. So even though audits were being completed, incidents were being raised, complaints were being detailed, although all that information was available, it wasn't being appropriately analyzed and actioned upon. Um, so uh, and as a result, the learnings were not, uh, were not coming through, and the same issues occurred repetitively again and again. Other areas that deemed a red risk, further oversight of key clinical information was required, as information provided to inspectors on the first day of the inspection was not accurate. So the tools and techniques, and the models that were on the floor to try and draw out the required key clinical information was not able to do what it needed to do. So you had a disconnect from what was actually happening on the floor to the data that was being presented to the inspector on the day, but you could be sure also to the data that was being reviewed from the governance perspective and therefore no action was being taken uh, in that regard. The system of risk review, investigation and learning from incidents involving residents required immediate review, and again, harking back to the Oak and Dean review, they found significant failures in relation to their investigation processes, and that was central uh, to the failings in, in the provision of poor care. In this instance, 25 incidents recorded within the previous four months, including 13 resident falls, had not been reviewed or corrective action had not been implemented. There was no road cause analysis completed or evidence of learning from these incidents as evidenced by the repeated falls. So no learnings, the same problems happen again and again. And there was no risk analysis or trend analysis of these incidents. So that data that was occurring on the floor, none of that being uh, trended, analysed, benchmarked and actioned upon. From an audit perspective, they found that the audit tools were not sufficiently robust or effective to identify findings that inspectors found on the day uh, day of the inspection. But this is an interesting one. Previously, or I I suppose when we talked about audit, if people engage in the audit process at all, that was a great step forward. But in many cases, these audits were a tick box exercise and really required very little tenacity or investigation. Uh, It was just tick the box, tick the box, that's the audit done. That's no longer acceptable. They expect your audit processes and the tools that you utilize within your audit to be sufficiently robust to find the issues that HICWA can find. They expect you to be able to reflect the inspection model that they apply within their organization. So it's not sufficient to have a tick box. You need trained auditors uh, that are effective in in being able to to identify the the root cause issues uh, that are occurring within your facility. So so that's that's important to note. So, for example, an environmental audit found 98% overall compliance, which differed from the inspection where there was very high levels of dirt, Poor hygiene were observed. So there was a disconnect between the audit results and what the inspectors, the HICWA inspectors, were finding uh, when they completed their inspections. A care plan audit identified a requirement for improvements. However, there was no action plan or person responsible identified to oversee or implement the required improvements. So in this case, there was a good audit done. They had identified issues, but then they just sat on the shelf and nobody actually took, there was no accountability allocated. To, uh, to, to address the issues that were identified, an infection prevention control audit concluded that there was insufficient cleaning hours. So the audit, the internal audit identified there's insufficient cleaning hours. However, findings of the inspection were that the registered provider had either failed to implement or sustain their own recommendations. So again, a lack of accountability, a lack of follow up on these issues that were being identified within the audit practice. So first of all, our audit practice needs to be good enough. And second of all, if it is good enough, we need to ensure that we act on the findings as they arise. Some non-compliant orange findings, the roles, remit and decision-making responsibilities of the operational management team were not clearly defined. This resulted in inconsistent monitoring processes of delegation of roles and responsibilities to frontline staff, without appropriate oversight so we all know from what we've come through over the last couple of years that delegation has become incredibly uh, important and and they really uh, they expect to see a full um, delegation of roles and responsibilities uh, throughout the organization so in this case the clarity of that was not here. It was not there. I'm uh, taking from that the job descriptions were not sufficiently detailed. And where there are delegated roles and responsibilities, it's really important that these are detailed within the job descriptions so that full clarity and accountability is given in relation to the tasks that are allocated to each individual. So in this case, they were being delegated to frontline staff who hadn't been appropriately trained. Um, to take on those roles and responsibilities. And as a result, there were failings within the, the, within the, the processes. Inspectors did not see evidence that the analysis of all information at management meeting was leading to quality improvement. So again, information coming as far as management, uh, but uh, no drive towards continuous improvement to ensure that uh, responses were, were, were taken. For example, in a management meeting three months prior to the inspection, there was a discussion relating to inappropriate glove use by staff. This remained a finding on the day of the inspection. So. It's one thing not to know you have a failing. It's another thing not to know you have an issue, but to do nothing about it. There was a time within, in, with the internal audits, if you had identified the issue, well, then there was a certain amount of leniency by Hickway and say, well, OK, they know about the issue and they're working on it. If there was evidence that they are actually putting in corrective actions and controls as required, it's another thing to know about it and not actually do anything about it. Uh, that, that's a double blow for your systems in that regard. Communications and reporting structures were not clear to staff, in particular for agency or relief staff, um, and there was a, a, and a formal communication system to report changes in residents' conditions or raise issues of concern was not in place. So the communication model not only for the the day to day uh, um, staff, frontline staff, but also those agency staff, how were we going to organize a communications reporting structure to ensure there's a continuity of care and, and information flow in that regard. So in this case, that was found lacking. Fire precautions. Then, said this is one of those key areas of focus? We have had a, um, a seminar before, or a webinar before, about the Hicwa um, Fire Safety uh, Fire Precautions Handbook, which we spent a good bit of time on. So this continues, as I said, uh, to be a key area of focus. With thirty-one percent of the organisations reviewed carrying red risks and forty-four with orange. So when we look at the red risk ones, the registered provider was not taking precautions. So our pre- pre-emptive measures uh, were not uh, sufficiently robust in this regard. They found a fire blanket in an external smoking shed was undersized for intended use. There was buildup and lint of a dryer, we had five oxygen cylinders stored in a conservatory, which was an excessive number to be stored, and they were at risk of being damaged by moving equipment or wheelchairs. There were four devices plugged into extension leads, hoist batteries plugged into a small area, and devices plugged into extension leads on the top of a resident wardrobe. So the you know consistent elements that were uh, that that are coming up again and again in relation to particular fire safety hazards. When we look at the escape, and and this was a particular area of focus about the adequate means of escape provided within the residential center, compartment boundaries for phased evacuation were not clearly defined. The extent of the fire compartments were not fully known by staff, which could cause delay in the event of an evacuation. A fire exit had been decommissioned without appropriate assessment or consultation with the fire professional. Fire signage was still present above the exit. So general confusion reigns in that regard. The fire exit doors needed a code to release the door locking mechanism. There was no manual override for the door in case a fault occurred and the code for the keypad was not kept beside the door. So significant failings in that regard. An exit door required a key to open it. There was no braced glass unit to provide the backup key. An external escape route was partially obstructed by rubbish bins. We see this all of the time uh, in, in, in the, the, the reports that we review. There was no evidence of fire exit signage or emergency lighting fitted in external escape routes to indicate fire exits or to illuminate this area in the event of an evacuation. And as access to a number of the bedrooms was through the day room, a strategy was required to ensure safe evacuation from these bedrooms, so more detail required in relation to the evacuation plan in place. There were no fire drills completed within the last six months, despite this being a requirement of their local policy. Some rooms had no fire detectors. Um, fire doors are always something that comes in for a, a, lot of, a, a lot of focus. Inspectors noted that some doors were missing heat and smoke seals, double fire doors had a gap in excess of the allowable tolerances, and fire doors had been repurposed and modified where a non-fire rated vent had been fitted to the fire door, all identified as high risk areas. The inspector noticed gaps and holes in fire barriers, there were cable penetrations through fire resistant ceilings that were not adequately sealed up, and some attic access hatches were not fire rated. So we can see there's a pretty broad spectrum of issues uh, across the board in relation to fire safety. I'm going to hand over to Lisa now, she's going to bring you through some of the issues in relation to infection control again. High risks of, our of, uh, high uh, number of failings in this regard, 67% uh, with orange risk non-compliances. Lista.
1: Great, thanks Ina. Um, so I know we're all sick of hearing about fire, about infection control, no, sorry, not about fire Ina, about infection control. Well, we're but, tired um... <laughs> of
0: fire too, don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> but uh, Hikwa did mention in the newsletter that they're focusing on it. So I'll just go through some of the findings then. So no identified person with appropriate knowledge and skills to manage the key areas of infection prevention and control. So that goes back to the local oversight and the even the competency framework document could be worth, worth having a look at that for that one and the cohorting arrangements were not in place in line with the centre's own COVID-19 preparedness plan. The PPE was not being used appropriately. This comes up again and again and everyone knows how to use it properly at this stage. still staff were not removing PPE in between rooms, staff were not wearing PPE inappropriately and extensive use of PPE in non-COVID-19 areas. So that just comes back to monitoring staff and making sure that they are using it appropriately. Uh, Separate dining and changing facilities were not available for staff allocated to care for residents with COVID-19 and those who were not. And the crossover of cleaning staff between COVID positive and not detective areas as well. So that one is worth keeping an eye on as well. That's the cleaning staff um, are in the cohort area, and um, so there are insufficient local assurance mechanisms in place, and um, to ensure that the environment and the equipment was decontaminated in line with the HICWA national standards. So again, they found damaged, worn, torn chairs, cushions, mattresses and inhibited cleaning, and um, so this comes up again and again, and um, that you know the premises is in a good enough state to prepare for the cleaning to actually take effect. Staining and rust were absorbed were observed on shower chairs, bathroom fittings, grab rails, toilet bowls and seats were dirty, unacceptable levels of dust and the carpets were not clean and no schedule in place for the decontamination of the carpets either. So it comes back to the maintenance system and having the system there in place. Thanks Nina. Um, In terms of the equipment then, the reusable nebulizer chambers were not rinsed with sterile water and stored dry after use. Several hoist slings were found hanging off pieces of equipment, and no resident identifiers were seen on the slings, so they had no way of knowing if they were resident specific and they could be used for a different residents. Uh, cleaning staff were using a hoover without a HPA, HEPA filtration system, which they don't recommend. And the same mop and water were used for up to six bedrooms, and mop buckets were emptied and refilled in the residents' ensuite toilets and showers and no bedpan washer currently available for use. And then the inspectors observed medicine cups and spoons being washed in the hand wash sink in the treatment room. Um, So that goes back to the hand washing facilities as well that the newsletter mentioned. So that's one worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks,
0: Thanks, Lisa. Okay, linked, I suppose, uh, in relation to the fire safety, also was staffing, and again, thirty-seven percent of these of the nineteen having issues in uh, in relation to this regulation. Red risks where there were sufi- while there were sufficient staff available during the day to meet the assessed needs of residents, there was insufficient staff resources at night to enable residents to be evacuated safely. So, as you said, that staffing and and, and fire safety going hand in hand. Some of the orange risks, there was insufficient clinical oversight to ensure residents consistently received care in line with their assessed needs and that staff practices were appropriate and in line with their training principles. Some other particular areas, the number of nurses available on the roster did not reflect the total nurses' hours committed to on the statement of purpose. So we have that. that that line in the sand uh, within the statement of purpose. And if we are falling below that, that is something of concern. In one facility over a one week period, there was no day where the centre operated at a full staffing capacity. There was heavy reliance on staffing agency nurses and agency healthcare assistants to fill the rosters. And in one 24 hour period, seven 12 hour healthcare assistant shifts went unfilled. Now I am in no way underestimating the, the I know it's, it's extremely challenging in relation to staffing currently, um, but that's a significant uh, number of hours um, that, that, that there was a gap with. The contingency planning for care staff required action as short-term absences were not always replaced. On some days there were six healthcare assistants over two floors providing care for up to 56 residents and one nurse on duty between 8 pm and, uh, or 9 p.m and 8 a.m to monitor those 56 residents, which you can sure realize is far from ideal. The registered provider had failed to ensure that the number and skill mix of staff was appropriate to meet the clinical and social care needs for the centre. There were insufficient cleaning staff, not enough staff to supervise residents with high care needs, and in some stages, the two sitting rooms, there was no staff of residents for prolonged periods of time. There was insufficient nursing staff to allow for separate nurse-led teams for COVID positive and not detected residents. Premises kind of links uh, with, uh, the, with, with a number of the other elements, and I know Lisa talked about it with IPC, but preventive maintenance certainly is a focus, an ongoing um, focus to try and bring, I suppose, everybody up to a higher standard. Uh, in many cases, a decommissioned pipe in a shared bathroom where there was trip hazards, Um, an external garden with overturned furniture, bags of rubbish, moss on the path, just uh, generally not not well maintained. Floor covering always comes up with several areas, damaged or uneven with posing trip hazards. One resident's television awaiting repair for five months and several commodes being stored in communal showers and toilets. I just wanted to flick through the person in charge, just that there was one key red risk there. This is where a PIC was appointed that did not have the three years experience uh, of nursing older persons within the previous six years and had not completed a post-registration management qualification. So the focus remains in that regard. I just wanted to skim over, I know we're tight on time, some of the other key areas of of concern um, in relation to assessment and care planning, you know, care planning records, just focusing on basic care needs and not giving sufficient insight on the overall health and well-being of residents. So we need a much more robust level of detail in relation to our nursing care records. In one case, a resident sustained five falls. The reassessment was not conducted following each fall and there was no falls care plan put in place for the resident. A resident with a history of pressure wounds and identified as a high risk did not receive any pressure relieving equipment. Care plans were not being reviewed as residents needs changed. In one case where a resident returned from a stay in hospital, inspectors found care plans were not updated within the required 48 hours. For healthcare and Regulation 6, nursing duties did not ensure that the residents received high standard of care. In this case, we had one nurse carrying out the medication administration round for all residents. Okay, so not where we want to be. Inspectors were informed that this was managed by half of the residents receiving their morning medications prior to 8 a.m. from the nurse on duty. So we had waking up residents um, with one uh, nurse. Uh, allocating medications at that time. This meant that these residents received their medications before the prescribed time for administration, let alone waking them up in the middle of the night. The lack of appropriate nursing assessments and reviews meant that a number of referrals for specialist advice and care were delayed. In one case, we had a resident who was identified as being high risk of malnutrition four months previously, but had yet to be referred to a dietitian, And they remained at risk. Protection we mentioned briefly as part of the governance but um, in this case inspectors raised ongoing concerns of abuse as a result of responsive behaviors, so this is peer to peer um, uh, abuse. Inspectors were not assured that the staffing resources could meet the supervision needs of residents to ensure that they were safeguarded in this case. The policy itself, the safeguarding policy was not being followed, incidents that met the definition of abuse were not being managed through the safeguarding procedures. Inspectors found five safeguarding incidents which had not been investigated by the person in charge. So we have failings in relation to the safeguarding application of their policy and also in relation to their investigation management processes. Although 98% of staff had received safeguarding training, inspectors found abuse was not recognized, and as a result, preventative measures were not put in place. So again, to be aware of the quality of the training that is being provided to staff so that they are actually receiving training on evidence-based practice, and it's effective, and it it finishes with competent staff in, in the area of training. There were a number of regulations that did not receive any non-compliant areas. Now the numbers are pretty small in those. Apart from visits, 15 of the 20 were reviewed, and all were found to be compliant in that regard. Pretty good resident feedback across the board of the 20 residents said they were kept informed of reasons for restrictions for for public health measures. Um, they did confirm in one facility that they were they. They identified there were staff shortages on some days and they had to wait for bells to be answered. And another one, they said that they felt that they did not get showered regularly enough. Inspectors told in another facility that the food was good and they had a choice of hot meals and that they were confident that they would be listened to if any issues of concern came to be known. Generally, that's all the findings from the report. The full report will be made available to you. Rosemary will ensure that all attendees receive uh, the report in detail, and you may have further learnings uh, uh, in in that regard, it goes into much more detail. For those of you who need support or assistance, just to let you know that HCI Care Tools remains online and available, and uh, Rosemary has yet another coupon code that we can uh, utilize for discounts in that regard. But if you have any queries about policy procedure templates, audits, audit tools, and general support and training that's required by your facility, please feel free to give us a call and we'd be only too happy to uh, support you in that regard. But with that, I think we can say thank you very much for taking the time to attend. As I said, this will be made available on LinkedIn and all of the other social websites um, should any of your other colleagues wish to have a listen.